close at hand, creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. Jam Master J, Adidas, WBLS, and Rush Productions presents a fundraising appearance by the kings of rap and roll. Live at the Apollo Theater, April 19th, two shows, 7 and 11. And though you to stay alive, you gotta rush, we only got 60 seconds to say a lot of shit. What's up, New York? My name is Jam Master J, and I'm here to say that Adidas, WBLS, and Rush Productions presents a fundraising appearance by the kings of rap and roll. Live at the Apollo Theater, April 19th, two shows, 7 and 11 p.m. What's up, New York? My name is Jam Master J, and I'm here to say that Adidas, WBLS, and Rush Productions present a fundraising appearance by the kings of rap, Run DMC. What's up, New York? Yo, what up? This is Run, and me and my man DMC gonna be busting new jams like... Take 15. Special guests, the Beastie Boys. Tickets 5, 10, 18, and $25 with special box seats at $30. Pick them up at the Apollo Theater box office or ticket sensors. Ticket outlets. Ticket master outlets. Ticket master outlets. Take 16. Guests, the Beastie Boys. Tickets 5, 10, 18, and $25 with special box seats at $30. Pick them up at the Apollo Theater box office or Ticketmaster Centers. Fuck it.
Flat Black Plastic Mutiny Radio FM. Thanks for listening. Uh, good positive vibrations goes out to Sean from Bug House on Tuesday. He had me in doing his show because he messed up his hands. So think good thoughts for Bug House, Sean. Think good thoughts for yourself and uh, remember. Always do the right thing.
are, man. I'd love to find you. I hate to, hate to belabor the point, but I will say it again in case nobody heard me the first time. There is someone giving out some flat blue acid. It is poison. There are 15 people who are very ill from it. Right, love shines a different light. Light, 
Hey everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Review with Roman. Today happens to be Thursday, September 9th, recording a day early today. Uh, I'll be out tomorrow, but I wanted to uh, share some news and music with you all today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Start off with some music as we always do. 100,000 Fireflies by The Magnetic Fields, uh, followed by Aquarius, Let the Sun Shine In by The Fifth Dimension. And played those songs because uh, one of the singers from The Magnetic Fields... Uh, Susan Anway passed away recently, and for um, Aquarius, Let the Sun Shine In, which is such a, just amazing song, uh, there's a great documentary that I encourage folks to see if you haven't already called uh, Summer of Soul that is on Hulu, and uh, it's so, just so good. I don't have the right words for it, but just highly, highly recommend checking that out. And that was one of the performances, uh, the Fifth Dimension were one of the bands that were featured in that documentary and such a good great song um just feeling like ugh, uh it i mean that song almost seems uh like the opposite of uh all that's happening right now there's so much death and um just personally i've known a lot of folks who have lost people very recently like three people who've lost their parents so wanting to honor them um recently that is Delane and Jim and Don, um, folks who should still be here, and uh, it just seems so backwards that uh, we live in a world where so many people who have spent their time helping people are not here, yet uh, folks like Henry Kissinger are still alive, Rupert Murdoch and uh, Charles Koch, and like all these you know, war profiteers and people who have used their time on this planet to make things more difficult people and have uh, promoted a lot of hate and bigotry and cruelty and death and it just seems so backwards and I say that on the show all the time it just feels so disturbing this is what we're, we're living in and also for Diana Deborah who recently passed away um, far too young and uh, it was just uh, it's have it's weird when you have like memories of people and it's like maybe only in passing, but just like a kind of essence or uh, kindness that they bring. And Diane brought that. And also a sense of humor. And I, it's just, it's feel so, uh, just really sad. So that's kind of where I'm at right now mentally. Um, we'll be sharing some news stories of things that are happening, some things that are pretty egregious. Um, this because it's important just to have an understanding of what is happening in the world and how we can push back against it to create a more equitable world where everyone uh, can feel safe. <laughs> it seems so far from the world that we're living in though right now, especially now. But I think it's it's possible. It's definitely possible. It's just a matter of what can be done to get us there. So we're broadcasting from Mutiny Radio. We're on Ramatouche Ohlone land, and for more information, go to ramatouche.org, and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.org. You can donate, as well as learn about the history. And we also have a land acknowledgement tab on our page at weeklyrev.org with uh, more links as well. So please do check out those sites. So I'm going to start off with an article that, uh, I mean, every day there's another reason to dislike cops, right? Am I wrong? No, I'm not. 
Um, I'm one of those people who I would love to be wrong. I would love to be like, oh, wait, I've been wrong about this this entire thing. And I would hope that I would be like, oh, okay, let me, you know, unpack my beliefs and everything and uh, apologize for being wrong. And in this case, uh, every day, I just like this, living with this militarized police force. Also, another great um, documentary I wanted to recommend is called Ruler Dreams. And that's also, I want to make sure I'm saying that correctly. That was also on Hulu. And it was about roller skating on Venice Beach in like the 80s and early 90s. Yeah, Roller Dreams. It's on uh, Hulu as well. And it was just really well done. And, um, you know, every time something's going well, it seems like uh, militarization of police seems to be one thing that prevents um, positive things from continuing to happen. And just also, I mean, not just that, but also the greed and white supremacy and the idea of gentrification and folks coming over and taking over land and kicking people out and trying to profit off that it's just it's so fucking sickening this is an article that came out on september 8th um from san levin from the guardian uk and there's also a lot of pushback against the guardian um because they're fucking transphobic as hell so i did want to also comment on that um this story aside um says uh Title revealed, LAPD officers told to collect social media data on every civilian they stop. That sounds totally normal, right? <sighs> An internal police chief memo shows employees were directed to use field interview cards, which would then be reviewed. And again, it's like, who are, who are giving them these orders? I have a good friend who has reminded me um it's important to focus one's anger and rage against the folks who are telling the cops what to do in the first place and are hiring them and are funding them <sighs> the los angeles police department has directed its officers to collect the social media information of every civilian they interview including individuals who are not arrested or accused of a crime according to records shared with the guardian Copies of the field interview cards that police complete when they question civilians reveal that LAPD officers are instructed to record a civilian's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and other social media accounts alongside basic biographical information. An internal memo further shows that the police chief, Mike, uh, Michael Moore, uh, but not the Michael Moore, this is a Michael without the A in, his, in the first name, uh, told employees that it was critical to collect the data for use in quote-unquote investigations, arrests, and prosecutions, and warned that supervisors would review cards to ensure they were complete. Um, how about we uh, review uh, police's? How about their uh, social media? When they're, I mean, it, let me continue. The documents, which were obtained by the not-for-profit organization the Brennan Center for Justice, have raised concerns about civil liberties and the potential for mass surveillance of civilians without justification. There are real dangers about police having all of this social media identifying information at their fingertips, said Rachel Levinson-Waldman, deputy director at the Brennan Center, noting that the information was probably stored in a database that could be used for a wide range of purposes. The Brennan Center conducted a review of 40 other police agencies in the U.S. and was able to find another department that required social media collection on interview cards, though many have not publicly disclosed copies of the cards. The organization also obtained records about the LAPD's social media surveillance technologies, which have raised questions about the monitoring of activist groups, including Black Lives Matter. In 2015, the department added social media accounts as a line on the physical field interview cards, according to a newly unearthed memo from the previous LAPD chief, Charlie Beck. 
similar to a nickname or an alias, a person's online persona or identity used for social media can be highly beneficial to investigations, he wrote. Meanwhile, like, neo-Nazis are, like, flooding the internet with all their fucking hate and, and violence. If they actually fucking cared about, you know, protecting people, they would... They would, you know, know who to go after. Anyway, while the social media collection has gone largely unnoticed, the LAPD's use of field interview cards has prompted controversy. Last October, prosecutors filed criminal charges against three officers in the LAPD's Metro Division, accusing them of using the cards to falsely label civilians as gang members after stopping them. That unit also has a history of stopping black drivers at disproportionately high rates, and according to the LA Times, has more frequently filled out cards for black and Latino residents they stopped. Meanwhile, more than half of the civilians stopped by Metro officers and documented in the cards were not arrested or cited, the Times reported. The fact that a department under scrutiny for racial profiling was also engaged in broad-scale social media account collection is troubling, said Levinson Waldman. Furthermore, when police obtain social media usernames, it opens the doors, door for officers to monitor an individual's connections and quote-unquote friends online, creating additional privacy concerns. It allows for a huge expansion of network surveillance, said Levinson Waldman, noting how police and prosecutors have previously used Facebook photos and likes to make dubious or false allegations of criminal gang activity. Hamid Khan of the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition noted that the LAPD also shares data with federal law enforcement agencies through fusion centers and has previously used predictive policing technologies that rely on data collected by officers in the field and which can criminalize communities of color. This is like stop and frisk, he said, of the use of field interview cards. And this is happening with the clear goal of surveillance. The LAPD, he noted, has allowed officers to pose undercover to investigate groups, meaning officers can create fake social social media accounts to infiltrate groups. Dr. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter LA, said she had long suspected the LAPD conducted targeted tracking of specific groups or individual accounts, but was surprised to learn of the default collection of this information in everyday encounters. She fears this could be part of a massive surveillance operation. The copies of the cards obtained by the Brennan Center also revealed that police are instructed to ask civilians for their social security numbers, whoa, and are advised to tell interviewees that it must be provided under federal law. Kathleen Kim, a Loyola law professor and immigrants' rights expert who previously served on the LA Police Commission, said she was not aware of any law requiring individuals to disclose social security numbers to local police. And she said she was shocked to learn about the social security section on the cards, noting that it was so antithetical to the department's own policies and clearly violated the spirit of sanctuary laws, which are supposed to prevent officers from asking civilians their immigration status. The LAPD had previously taken steps to ensure it was not requesting place of birth information to improve trust with undocumented communities, she said. The LAPD told The Guardian on Tuesday that the field interview card policy was being updated, but declined to provide further details. The revelations of broad social media data collection also raised concerns about how police monitor activists. The Brennan Center obtained LAPD documents related to Geophedia, a private social media monitoring firm that partners with law enforcement and has previously marketed itself as a tool to monitor BLM protests. One internal document, which is updated, Oh, excuse me, which is undated, 
but appeared to be several years old listed the keywords and hashtags that the LAPD appeared to be monitoring throughout Geophedia, and they were almost exclusively related to Black Lives Matter and similar leftist protests. It included hashtag BLMLA, hashtag say her name, Sandra Bland, Tamir Rice, hashtag fuck Donald Trump, and the names of people killed by LA police that prompted major protests. The list did not include any hashtags for right-wing demonstrations and far-right movements, which have grown increasingly violent in recent years in the region. The context in which these search terms were used is unclear from the records provided, and the LAPD did not respond to questions. The city attorney's office said the LAPD stopped using Geophedia around 2017 and that the agency did not have a current list of keywords for social media monitoring. Abdullah, who helped organize around many of the hashtags the LAPD was monitoring, noted that BLM's actions were nonviolent. They're following black protesters who are organizing to stop violence and saying, stop killing us. And, uh, and, are, and are they turning a blind eye to those who are actually violent, the white supremacist organizations that are growing in number? In a 2016 memo to LAPD included in the records, another social media tracking company, Data Miner, and that's, data, that's a miner without the E, listed under success stories, it's tracking of a BLMLA protest outside a jail, saying the firm uncovered the first images of people at the protest, as well as its tracking of a protest featuring a giant blow-up statue of Trump. The local news site, LA Taco, reported last week that LAPD has used data miner to monitor last year's BLM protests for George Floyd. Jacinta Gonzalez, uh, an organizer with the advocacy group Mijente, and Jacinta's been a guest on the show um, um, a few years ago, um, said the LAPD records appeared to fill a pattern of how police in America respond to protest organizations. There's a long history of law enforcement using surveillance, whether in person or through digital technologies to attack black and Latino movements fighting for racial justice. The Brennan Center's records further revealed the LAPD is now seeking to use technology from a new company, Media Sonar, which also attracts social media for police. Fuck them. And if you're working for any of these companies, go seriously quit your job. That's the, it's the best case scenario. I mean, just leave. In the 2021 budget, the LAPD allotted $73,000 to purchase Media Sonar software to help the department address a potential threat or incident before it, its occurrence. The extent of the LAPD's media sonar use is unclear, but the company's communications with the LAPD have raised questions. In one message, the firm said its services can be used to stay on top of drug-slash-gang-slash-weapon slang keywords and hashtags, Levinson Waldman said. She feared the company or police would misinterpret quote-unquote slang or lack proper context on local groups and language, and she noted research showing that online threats made by gang-affiliated groups largely don't escalate to violence. Media Sonar also told the LAPD it's, it offers pre-built keyword groups to help jumpstart implementation of threat models and helps police cast a wide net. Ugh. The firm also said it would provide a full digital snapshot of an individual's online presence, including all related personas and connections. The messages from Media Sonar suggested that the department needed significant safeguards to ensure that keywords didn't dis disparately target marginalized communities and checks to ensure the data was accurate, Levinson Waldman said. Records show that the LAPD has requested federal funding for Media Sonar for quote unquote terrorism prevention. Aren't the police the ones who are going around killing people? All right. 
Ugh, but some advocates are concerned it would be used for protests. In March, <coughs> excuse me. In March, a city council report analyzing the LAPD's response to BLM protests recommended the department purchase software to analyze social media content. Media Sonar did not respond to inquiries about its relationship with the LAPD. The LAPD did not respond to requests for comment about Media Sonar. So again, this article is from uh, Sam Levin from The Guardian UK, and we'll be posting a link to this on our website over at weeklyrev.org. I'm going to sip some water, uh, rest my voice a bit, and let's listen to some more music. So this is a song called Galacticana by Strand of Oaks.
that was Love is the Law by the Suburbs. Before that, we heard Silly Girl by the Descendants. And before that, Genvokes with Clacticana. Coming up next, uh, I'm going to stay on the same theme. And it's a thread, a very helpful thread I read recently on Twitter from Alec Caracatesanis. Really? This is what happens when uh, one doesn't uh, edit their shows. You get to hear me try out names and uh, sometimes mispronounce them. Alec Caracatesanis. I didn't think it was going to be that rough. My apologies. Anyway... Um, really informative uh, person to follow on Twitter. You can follow Alec at, at Equality Alec. Updated thread. You're going to hear a lot about how cops need more resources because crime is surging, and that's in quotation marks, in the next few months. It's propaganda, and here's how you can respond. So this is super helpful because uh, I find it's just, uh, there's so much misinformation out there, and it's really helpful to have, if you're able to, to respond to the the lies, um, it's helpful to have ways to do so. And this t- thread came out on August 4th of this year, and I'll also share uh, a link to this on our page. First, what constitutes a crime is determined by people in power who have a lot of money. And let's see. And, there's, and then there's a link to another thread. And the first part of that is a few thoughts about crime. Uh, The concept of crime is created and manipulated by people who have power. Throughout U.S. history, powerful people have defined crime in ways that benefit wealthy people and white people. The next uh, second, cops manipulate crime stats for political reasons. Cops don't even count the violent and sexual crimes that cops commit, which would entirely reverse the crime stats in every city and state. If all the crimes committed by police and jail slash prison guards was counted, it would completely change police crime stats that these experts, and experts in quotation marks, uh, regurgitate in the media to support police propaganda. Third, police ignore most quote-unquote crime. They only look for some crime committed by some people in some places. A school fight in a poor neighborhood is recorded as a crime, but a fight in a wealthy private school is not. And then there's a post. Uh, read hundreds of examples here. And let's click on this link here. This is one of those threads that there's so many different links and there's so many uh, paths to go down. And this links to an article from the Yale Law Journal, The Punishment Bureaucracy, How to Think About Criminal Justice Reform. And this was written in March of 2019. And uh, it looks like a lot of, uh, many of many quotes and it's a very long article here, but I recommend checking that out, and that's also linked in our thread here. Fourth, police have incentives to focus on some crimes, and again, crimes is in quotation marks, and not others. They make billions of dollars in overtime for low-level arrests. This is one reason cops have ignored hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits while making record record drug arrests for decades. And then there's a link to... Uh, an article by Corey Rayburn Young, uh, How to Lie with Rape Statistics, from the Iowa Law Review. (sighs) Fifth, police corruption in search of extra cash and weapons affects all of what cops do and what they tell us about what they do. For example, police take more property through civil forfeiture than all property crimes combined. I want to... I... In my alternate 
in an alternate universe, um, I've got nothing against wheat pasting. I feel like I, I just should get my shit together and do it and or get some folks together to do it. But I feel like so many of these great pieces of information would be great just to be, put them around the city on walls just so like folks can like see them and just see the truth of what's out there as opposed to like the lies that are just oftentimes printed in the paper and and discussed everywhere. But yeah, that's uh, I think that's a really important one to uh, comment on. And if you get sucked into any of those Twitter threads about having to how police are helpful, you can say how they actually cause uh, more more theft than anyone else. They take more property through civil forfeiture than all property crimes combined. Yeah. Ugh. Sixth. Only 4% of all cop time goes to what they call quote-unquote violent crime, and cops are terrible at solving quote-unquote violent crime. Overwhelming evidence establishes that cops in prisons actually increase future crime, so cops are terrible at preventing harm. And then they provide a link of how do police actually spend their time. From the New York Times, seventh, what cops call quote-unquote crime is different from what causes harm. For example... Tobacco kills 480,000 people every year in the U.S., including 41,000 from secondhand smoke. These preventable deaths dwarf police-related data on deaths from the drugs cops call crime. Eight. Eighth. The same is true of water and air pollution for fraudulent and fraudulent home foreclosures, all of which cause huge death rates that kill far more people than what cops call homicides. Ninth. Wage theft, that's a big one. Wage theft by employers isn't in crime stats because it's almost never investigated by cops, but it costs low-wage workers an estimated $50 billion a year, dwarfing the cost of all cop-reported robberies, burglaries, larcenies, and car thefts combined. Tenth, do you know that rich banks make about as much in fraudulent overdraft fees as all of what police call property crime combined in the U.S. Did you know that none of this makes it into police property crime statistics? And then there's a link from prospect.org. Big banks charge millions, billions, excuse me, billions in overdraft fees. Let me finish. Let me click on this so I can finish reading the headline. Big banks charged billions in overdraft fees during the worst months of the pandemic. That was from April of 2021 by Alexander Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N, from uh, American, the American prospect. Oof. Next, 11th. There are millions of yearly white collar crimes by big corporations and the wealthy people who own them, but police don't put them in their crime stats. Read more here about why cops distort the concepts of crime and actual harm. And then there's a link to an article from currentaffairs.org. Excuse me. And the title is. Why crime isn't the question and police aren't the answer. Mm, I may have to read that on the air later. Next. Twelfth. Police will say, but even if crime is politicized, and even if violent crime is actually down in 2021, shootings are up. Well, gun sales are up 40%, and we're in a global pandemic mental health crisis. Murder is a problem, but not one related to more cops. Thirteenth. The initial 2021 trend of more shootings is especially accelerated in places that increase police funding, and almost no city decreased police funding significantly. See a few examples. And then I have another thread here. Fourteenth. Almost all reporting about a crime surge uses low base rates, so that percentage 
changes can appear high. An increase of 10 shootings to 12 shootings is reported as a 20% increase. 15th, media often focuses on month-to-month or year-to-year numbers, emphasizing different crimes at different times if one goes up, obscuring larger trends like this. We have among the lowest murders in the last 50 years, and other countries have, with fewer cops have way fewer murders. 16th, cops slash media thus cherry-pick data. The result of this manipulation is one of the big scandals of our time. One of the big scandals of our time. For decades, the public has hugely overestimated crime rates. And then there's a link to this article. Um, Many Americans are convinced crime is rising in the U.S. They're wrong. But their their fear makes everyone less safe. And that's from 538 and was written by Maggie Korth. That's K-O-E-R-T-H. Next, 17th. There is no evidence that cops in prison reduce any crime, especially that they reduce crime, quote-unquote, relative to other alternatives. Think about what could have been done to help people without the trillions of dollars spent on the war on drugs. And then there's a thread about the war on drugs. (sighs) I'd read that, but I'd probably get too angry. As opposed to now, I'm just kind of medium angry. 18th. People telling you to give more cash to cops because of crime don't count the costs, millions of arrests, millions of separated kids, millions of lost jobs, homes, medical appointments, tens of millions of police assaults, hundreds of millions of criminal records. 19th. Those calling for more cash for cops don't tell you that the trillions of dollars spent on police prisons has been used by cops for total surveillance and to infiltrate and crush every single movement for social justice in the past 100 years. And that totally just corresponds to the last article we read. 20th. The the idea of soaring crime after a few dozen more shootings without reporting, how many people died from unstable housing, lack of access to health care, pollution, or malnutrition is how elites keep us focused on solutions of control and profit and not liberation. Finally, not all human tragedy is preventable, but quite a lot of it is, oh, I feel that, and accepting propaganda on crime and police data about that concept as a proxy for holistic public safety is the original sin of most writing in this topic. Uh, read more uh, at uh, the the Twitter handle is in, interrupt c r i m interrupt crim uh, and fight back against propaganda that wealthy interests and cop unions are feeding us. And then oh, um, this person just did the citations podcast and. Um, Ooh, we may have to uh, play that. Let's just do that then. I did have some articles lined up, and I'm also talking a lot, and it's super important to get other people's voices on here. So let's play this. This is episode 142, the summer of anti-Black Lives Matter backlash, and how, let's see what the full title is, and how the concept of crime were shaped by the property class. This is a bit long, so let's start playing it and see. What we get here. Hmm.
For instance, in the New York Times, May 11th, 2021, quote, shootings and subway attacks put crime at center of NYC mayor's race. Two weeks later, the New York Times was back, May 2021, with this, quote, a year after George Floyd, pressure to add police. And then just a couple days later, May 25th, 2021, CNN had this, quote, defund the police in existence as violent crime. The next month, June 24th, 2021, you had Reuters with defying defund police calls. Democrat Eric Adams leads race. On July 10th, 2021, the Washington Post ran an opinion piece by Professor Raymond J. Laraja with the headline, The New York mayoral primary is a reminder voters are in it, it talks about the quote-unquote coalition that Democratic primary frontrunner for the royalty, Eric Adams, had assembled, which it called reminiscent of, quote, old borough alliances. The article kind of makes the faux populist claim that so-called real and, quote-unquote, less educated really want tough-on-crime, unlike, of course, hippy-dippy progressive. Left and the article says this about Democratic Adams says Adams quote reminded us that less educated make up most of the party different priorities than the notably on a major issue in a pre-election poll of likely New York Democrats showed that fear of crime weighed much more heavily on the minds of less yeah, and so you have this narrative that's not only was so that shows gun movement and bail reform. This is that this is sort of a backlash against Eric Adams candidate. Now, there's one major problem with that. There is zero evidence any correlation between this February 20 article by Igor Darish details why the argument against the defund sense quote few cities have actually cut their police Minneapolis city up to abolish the police protest but ultimately cut just eight million dollars from the budget while leaving the same number of cops on fight nonstop fear-mongering from New York Unions after Mayor de Blasio touted would describe a $1 billion police cut. The move was largely criticized by NYPD agency. Only a dozen of the roughly 18,000 Many of the cities that did cut police budgets blamed revenue shortfalls caused by coronavirus pandemic rather than demand. Demonstrators. So when you compare the modest, and I mean very modest, like less than 1% budget cuts in certain police departments with those that Increase police. There is zero correlation. Mm-hmm. There is zero correlation between whether or not the mayor Democrats. So obviously, the idea that criticism of defund or anti-defund or anti-defund backlash is a result of somehow fund winning <laughs> right. or meaningfully reducing prisons. Is Remember total... how there was no police anymore, Adam, after last summer and now crime went up? Like... Yeah, it's a total fiction. And indeed, the departments that increased the police budget, which was most of them, by the way, increased the total number of police. Those, of course, all increase in murder as well. Mm-hmm. So there is 
absolutely no connection between those two things at all. The only connection they can really make, which is nebulous, demoralizing. That the protesters like gave them a sad, and they decided not to like pursue criminals. Quit. Yeah, <laughs> right, they sort of exactly. sat in their car and ate donuts <laughs> instead of because they can't show any connection. So they had to come up with this very this kind of mystical woo woo ish explanation. That felt sad or they canceled the TV show cops, so now actual cops have been. Yeah, and so this is very sort of typical of the argument. And so what you had is you had a very brief moment last where people really fundamentally reconsidered what public safety was, what healthy communities would look like, what crime prevention rather than throwing police at crime, what that would look like. We had a bit of a broke of the kind of ideological hegemony of on crime more cops. Prosecutors logic for like five minutes, Uber, Nike, CNN, everyone sort of Time Warner, mm-hmm. NBA, everyone suddenly decided they cared about racism. About what? And then it was sort of, okay, let's just kind of reduce all this to these charity programs, education funding. Of course, has nothing to do with why black people Making sure that Black Lives Matter is painted across uh, For some fucking bizarre reason, I guess we wanted to make sure the aliens could see this the slogan. Right. Once the mural quotient was hit, they went back to... Right, and then everyone, including de Blasio, just gave 1,200 more police... My opinion, everyone sort of moved on. And we said, oh, no, no, we can have reform, but we're not going to actually do anything. We're biased training. We're going to sort of gesture towards reform, right? As Eric Adams, to his credit, did, because Eric Adams was similar to Trump's in that he sort of would say contradictory things all the time. So, but there's a reason why he got the New York Post endorsement, because basically signaled that he would let the cops do what he wanted to do. And so now you have this murder rate going up. Democrats need someone to blame. You can't really blame. High murder rates in Democratic Republicans, so they're going after this. It's sort of gone too far, gone too far. Eric Adams shows us. Never mind that Philadelphia reelected aggressive prosecutor Krasner, and never mind that Buffalo elected a mayor. Forget all that. This was one election proves that the Democrats, that the black, what is, they love cops all of a sudden. And of course, again, depends how you phrase the poll, but sometimes that's true. And there are lots of African Americans and Latinos who do like cops, who do want cops, again, for the reasons option, social condition into, the narrative cemented itself. There was an uptick in murder. Neither defund, neither Black Lives Matter. Substance. That was all dead in the water. Over. They had gone too far. Classic example of like, they never had any power. I mean, this is just like, they did this with like a lot of Bernie stuff. Like Bernie would campaign on Medicare for all. And then, like, he would lose, and then they, or they would lose the primary, and they'd say, this is evidence that that doesn't work for Democrats. It's like, right. that never was policy. That never won anything. It was, like, it was purely theoretical. The fund was purely theoretical. They never won an election. They never had any power. Socialism failed because we sanctioned to death every moderately socialist country in the global south. Proof that it does not work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And they're never given a chance to work. They're never given a chance to alternative. All these nascent defund movements were snuffed out in their infancy. Clever accounting, which is not really any substantive reconsider public safety. There's some measures, there's some people who are. The most part, we're exactly where we weren't. And there's zero correlation between any meaningful scale, because they're also going after bail reform. That murder rates are up in cities without any bail reform, which is. The vast majority of cities, I cannot stress this enough, but they need to go after these 
Otis reforms because they need to scapegoat them, not only for their own failures, justify why they're tragedy. They need to nip it in the bud, as Joseph. They need to nip any kind of reform movement. An opportunity to see a dog here, ally in the White House. Pelosi line, the line for the DCCC, for the board in 2020. We're the tough on crime party. We're not pro defund. Oh, they blamed, by the way, congressional law. No correlation there. It's a narrative. It has to be true. doesn't matter what the fucking data says. This has to be the narrative moving forward. We want to talk to our guests about why that's not the case and why these movements are still worth defending, even though it's become unpopular to do. We will now be joined by Alec Karakatsanis, founder and executive director of Civil Rights. Alec was a civil rights lawyer and public defender for years in the District of Columbia and the state of Alabama and co-founded the organization Equal Justice Under Law. He's the author of the book, Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. And you can follow him on Twitter at EqualityAlec. He'll join us in just a moment. Stay with us. Okay, I meant to start that a little bit later, but uh, we'll continue listening because I do feel like this is super informative. So again, we're listening to Citations Needed Podcast, episode 142. And this came out on August 4th, 20. And again, we'll post all of our links over on the website at weeklyrev.org. Or you want to talk about how it's sort of done. How we sort of generally understand Data and reporting helps quality. Not to collect all. ISIS motherboard just published an article on July 26th. Otter technology used by police allegedly hear gunshots. I want to talk about our concept specifically and how we can crime search. Potential, and it's a great place to start. I mean, the very notion of what constitutes a quote unquote crime is determined by powerful people, people who have power in societies across the world and throughout our own history here in this country have always changed the definition of what is criminal to suit their own interests. A classic example is it didn't used to be criminal to possess marijuana. The marijuana plant was not criminalized until it became useful for very powerful people to give police more discretion to arrest people. And that was associated with a desire by powerful people to give police more tools to track down, cage, arrest, and potentially deport Mexican-American immigrants. The same is true with opium. Powerful people decided to give this police the discretion to arrest people for possessing the opium substance, to give them more power over Chinese-American immigrants. The same is true with cocaine and black Americans. Powerful people decided to make that criminal. It didn't used to be criminal. It was decided to be made criminal 
precisely so they could give police more discretion to surveil and track and arrest and cage and then profit off the labor of black Americans after the Civil War. The same concept is true across the concept of crime. So for example, wagering in the streets over dice is a crime. Who wagers in the streets over dice? Mostly poor people. But wagering over international currencies or the global supply of wheat, not a crime. In fact, people who wager on those things make billions of dollars and have their names on the wings of hospitals and museums. Or housing discrimination, it's not seen as a crime. Or sexual harassment at work, these are things that cause a lot of harm, but that our society has chosen to deal with in a civil context and not a criminal context. Another example might be campaign contributions. Some countries, and, and indeed different times in this country's history, you might consider the current political funding system as bribery, the crime of bribery. We have legalized it in this country. Invading foreign countries, drone strikes, refusing to offer medicine to people or insulin to people who need it, those could all be considered crimes. And at different times and places in our country's history, different things have been crimes, like refusing to give someone an abortion or giving someone an abortion or refusing to join a union or joining a union. I guess the first point I want to make is that so much of what we think of as criminal is actually just political choices made by people in power. I think a second topic we should talk about, though, is that of the things that are criminalized, the police only search for those crimes in some places mm -hmm. some of the time. And the, the way they make decisions over where to look for those crimes is actually even more important. So, for example, wage theft is a crime. Wage theft costs about 50 to $100 billion a year. But who commits wage theft? It's wealthy, large employers, corporations. It's almost never enforced by any police department or prosecutor's office in the country, even though, by conservative estimates, it costs as much money and damage by about a factor of five as all robbery, burglary, larceny, shoplifting, all property crimes combined. And then tax evasion costs about a trillion dollars a year. This is a crime that's committed by wealthy people. It's 20 times the damage of wage theft and about 100 times the damage of all other property crime combined, almost never enforced. Mm -hmm. Sexual assault laws are almost never enforced while police gorge themselves on drug arrests, etc. Constantly, all over the country, they left hundreds of thousands of rape kits untested. I could go on and on. Fights in private schools, environmental pollution. There are several million environmental crimes committed every single year by companies and wealthy people in this country. They're never enforced. So I think we have to understand that background context before we have a conversation about crime. All that's true. I think some listening may say, okay, prove your point, citations. We've been talking about crime as a social construct for part of an hour now. You've proved your point. You're all a bunch of high-in-the-sky sort of far-left types. But murder is rather binary. You're either dead or alive. For the most part, and that murder is not something that murder across cultures has typically been frowned upon. In the Ten Commandments, Hammurabi's Code, whatever, sort of a thing that is universally seen as bad, and that murder is up and murders up a lot, and that this spike of some say twenty five percent, we can debate that. That this is fueling a, or rather, it's I think it's fair to say it is, it is the fuel of a pre existing narrative that's been around for years, but now there's a sort of statistical mm -hmm. reference point they can cling to to push back against George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, fund movement, the abolish movement within the Democratic Party. I mean, we've been speaking, it's pretty much the, the premise of this episode. Now, people getting shot in Chicago or Parkland, Florida, that is not a social construct. That is an objective reality. I want to sort of talk about this new liberal hand-wringing about blaming the rise in murders, not on a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, which 
seems like if you looked at the X factor here, that would be. But for the most part, New York Times, Vox, CNN, they're blaming it on modest barrel reform, despite as we talk about it. I want to talk about murder and the rise of and what people are blaming that rise. How we've immediately skipped past messiness of debating how we can deal with that to just asserting that police are better. Your, your arch nemesis, Matt Iglesias, says police are better. Herman Lopez, police are better. Eric Levitt's police are better. I want to talk about that assumption of current reactionary pushback fueled by murder through the Black Lives Matter. Well, I have, first have to dispute that he's my arch nemesis. I feel like that, that <laughs> the word nemesis conveys that he's coming at me with some kind of um, actual substance and that I'm having trouble that, overcoming. That he's an actual threat. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's such a nonsense thinker and so much of what he does is just so pathetic. I would hope he wouldn't be a nemesis. Wow, not even worth your time. This is like the Raul Julia speech from Street Fighter. He's not even, he's, it was to you, it was a Tuesday, but go ahead. He, he's very much worth our time though, but I don't want to be too flippant. I mean, sure, sure, he sure. communicates to millions of people every single day. And, he's and supposedly shapes the Biden administration's agenda according to Politico. But go ahead. Exactly. He's, he's out there spewing just total fabrications and nonsense. And a lot of people listen to him because he is really skirting the line between conventional wisdom and police propaganda very effectively. But I think this is this question about murder is so important. First, let me just say, we have a, a violent society. We have to acknowledge that. There's a lot of violence in our society every single day, not just murder, but our society is full of people harming each other. It's full of structural violence that leads to extraordinary and preventable death every single day. And the reason I do this work and the reason I care about this topic we're talking about right now is I think our society's response to this harm is fundamentally flawed exactly the way you suggest with your question. So let me just first say, if policing made us safer, and if policing prevented murder, we'd be the safest country in the world. No society in modern recorded world history has ever spent so much money on policing, cages, prosecutors, and judges, right, and courts. It doesn't make us safer. It doesn't prevent murder. In fact, there is not a single thread of evidence. Increased expenditures on police prevent murder. The other thing that I, I want to suggest is that we should care about violence and death much more broadly than the narrow definition of murder that police are concerned with. First of all, police don't, when they're doing the murder stats, they don't count deaths in prison. They don't count deaths by police. They don't include those in the murder rates. They also don't include all of the people that die from lack of health care, from environmental pollution, from home foreclosures. So when a bank fraudulently forecloses on a home or a landlord illegally kicks people out, we know that that actually is associated with huge increases in death deaths that actually dwarf the murder statistics that police rely on. And if we have a little bit of an expanded definition of preventable death, rather than the sort of very constrained definition of homicide that police departments report, I think we'd actually start to see a really different discussion about what are some of the solutions to that problem. Make no mistake, there has been increase this year in the number of police reported homicides. And I think it's important that we on the left actually talk about this issue and talk about why Things like poverty and mental health care and gun sales and alienation in general from the things that connect us to other human beings, lack of access to art and music and theater and poetry and sort of ways of youth connecting to each other. These are the things that the evidence shows are actually connected to violence. And they're precisely not the things that our society is actually spending billions and billions of dollars on in every single city around the country when we talk about the way that police spend their time. Keep in mind, Police only spend 4% of all of their time 
on what they themselves call violent crime. It's even less on murder. Right. Have almost nothing to do with that issue. When Eric Levitz and Matt Iglesias say criminology or the sociology is settled, because they don't just say it's like a contestable Eric Levitz literally says not a contestable point. More police reduces crime. By extension, I think they infer murder. What are they citing? What is that study and why is it bullshit? This is like now kind of taken for circles. I really want to kind of why it shouldn't. I debunked this stuff last year in my piece in Current Affairs called Why Crime Isn't the Question and Police Aren't the Answer. But there are just a few basic points. I mean, okay. number one, they're using terrible data. Number two, the studies are actually quite weak and don't actually support the assertions that Levitz and Iglesias make about them. Number three, and this is probably most important, None of the studies that they cite, which are, are all flawed and weak, even sort of methodologically, none of them actually measure whether... So most of the studies are actually like very short-term studies about flooding a particular area with police and then looking at what the very short-term effect of crime was, right? right? So what they don't measure actually is, hey, when you flood a neighborhood police and arrest people and cage them and send them to prison and, and then separate them from their children, their children grow up without a parent... What are the long-term criminogenic effects on crime? So they don't even look at that. Whereas some of the other broader literature actually tracks whether incarceration leads to more crime in the future and concludes that it does. But the short-term place-based studies don't even compare police to other alternatives. So these it would be totally consistent with these studies to flood a neighborhood with poets or artists or priests. They don't question whether the people flooding these neighborhoods need to have guns and need to be police officers, right? It could right. be after-school programs, et cetera. And when you look at the other literature on the effectiveness of anti-poverty programs, community-based violence interruption, poetry, theater, music, art, athletic programs for kids, all have like extremely high effectiveness rates, even on a long-term basis. So there's nothing particularly about the police in any of these studies. And then I think the most disingenuous and kind of fraudulent thing that they do is they use these points to argue for larger police budgets and to argue against reducing the size and power of police. Mm -hmm. They actually use this to argue against replacing police with mental health first responders and things like that. But in fact, because only 4% of police time is spent on violent crime, 96% of the time is not, you could actually reduce police budgets by 90% and still double the time and attention police give to these very particular strategies that Iglesias and Levitz and others rely on, mm -hmm. the so-called hot spot policing or emergency responder policing stuff that they contend from these studies actually reduces crime. So it's, what's fascinating is that the studies that they rely on are entirely consistent with massively defunding these large and wasteful and kind of fraudulent police bureaucracy. We could double the amount of police time and attention spent on the tactics that they think score well in their studies and still reduce police by 90%. So in this summer of fear that I think is definitely a reaction to last year's uprisings, other related defund and abolitionist movements, the narrative is going to win, right? Like we can cite all the data we want, but there is a perception and that perception helped along, of course, by the media's obsession with leads is doing all of this kind of narrative work. And so this pushback, this backlash really against movements for justice, movements for less policing, movements for alternatives, movements for funding education and employment and the arts, things like that. That is really, I think, the media narrative, also the 
political narrative largely of the summer of 2021. What do you think, Alec, is a good way to kind of combat that? Yes, of course, we can point to data. We can say, okay, <laughs> actually don't do shit about the stuff that you think you're scared of that probably isn't even out your front door, but you know, down the cul-de-sac and then across town and then across the highway, et cetera, et cetera. But like that perception is definitely leading what we're hearing in this pushback. What would you say to kind of help along a more positive, less reactionary weaponizement? That's such a difficult question. I mean, I think there is a couple of components. There's a reason that people like Iglesias and Matt Taibbi more recently and Greenwald and Lee Fong and Eric Levitz and all these Substack writers, they never talk about the costs of policing. And I think what we saw last summer was an organic uprising or sort of mass set of thousands of uprisings all over the country because people saw very viscerally right in front of their faces in a way they couldn't ignore the incredible, extraordinary costs of the way that this country polices. And so there's a reason that those writers don't talk about the cost of policing, like surveillance, beatings, stabbings, family separation, sexual assaults, and domestic violence by police officers, which, by the way, the police don't even keep track of. And if they kept track of sexual assaults by police, it would totally change the crime rates in every major American city. That's how prevalent physical and sexual assaults are by police. Police don't even report those in when they give crime statistics. So these would entirely reverse the trends. And I think we have to do a better job of getting people to understand extraordinary costs of policing. Another of the big costs, perhaps the biggest in my mind, is that the more you fund police and give them surveillance technology and weaponry, you enable police to do what they have done for the last 140 years, which is to crush every movement for social and racial and gender justice that has ever occurred in this country. Every struggle for labor rights, every struggle for immigrant rights, every struggle for working class people and people who sort of want to make a better life that in a more equal society, mm -hmm. it's been the police that has infiltrated and brutally suppressed those movements. That is what police do. That is actually their primary function for the ruling class. And when you fund them more, you make it harder and harder to achieve all of the progressive social changes that even people like Taibbi and Iglesias and Fong claim that they want. What they don't understand is that the police have always been the tool that the ruling class uses to crush organizing by tenants, by workers, by women, for many, many years, by people who are struggling in various formations in the queer movements. These are people who understand very, very deeply what the police are. And if we can change that narrative and get more and more people to understand, that's why I thought, for example, the, the videos last year of the NYPD crushing brutally the union picket line of the fruit and vegetable workers in New York City, asking for $1 a day extra during a pandemic to make sure people in New York had the fruit and vegetables they needed for their families to stay healthy. And NYPD crushed that revolt. Mm -hmm. And if you look back throughout history, in every decade of the 20th century, the police have brutally crushed labor organizing. So I think that one really important narrative for us to push back on is to give people a more clear understanding of what the police do. Let's look at how they spend their time. How much of their time is spent arresting people for being homeless, for low-level crimes like disorderly conduct or disobeying an order. One of the most common police arrests in this country is arresting people for driving on a suspended license when there are 11 million people who don't have licenses just because they're poor, because they can't pay fees and fines, not because they're bad drivers. That's actually the leading arrest in many jurisdictions in this country. So I think we need to give people a better sense of, of what police do.
You bring up an excellent point, which is, forgive me, Lord, I cannot remember who said it on Twitter, and I always feel bad not accrediting, but someone says something to the effect of, like, Occupy showed that Black Lives Matter has to precede Occupy in some ways because of the disruption, the clubbings, the beating, clearing out of Zuccotti Park, etc. And I thought that was sort of a good point. And one of the one piece of friction, I, I think most urgently on that, not to steer from media criticism into like political theory, is that I don't see, if you play the tape to the end, I don't see any scenario where we have meaningful or urgent climate change or climate justice or climate justice mitigation, which is evenly by the, the, the harmful effects of climate change. I don't see any scenario where that takes place without mass civil unrest by normal people. And I don't see any way in which that civil unrest can be meaningful when you have a well-funded, highly surveilled RoboCop-type police force. And that speaks to your point. And that is a, such an essential point, because like, there's basically no meaningful social, urgent social issue that is not snuffed out by police from the IWW to present day climate change to what have you, right? So in many ways, it's kind of the hub of all these movements like you talked about. But what I wanted to ask you is this idea of crime existing on a ledger and that when we talk about, which we discussed at the top of the show, when you talk about crime, quote unquote, crime is this isolated thing that happens on the street. Forget all the wage theft and environmental destruction, all the other examples you bring up, even even setting that aside, even if you sort of accept a very limited Matt Iglesias definition of crime, there's still this other side of the ledger of harm that's done with mass incarceration that no one ever fucking talks about. And this was one of the hardest things I did at The Appeal when I had a podcast. It's like, we're talking about the kind of Willie Horton moral hazard of crime coverage. Is that like, with the one exception of maybe when they see us, I can't think of very any pop culture depiction of the harm that that causes. The actual dehumanization, the violence of prison, the sexual assault, the beating, the years lost, the money lost, the fathers who are lost, the daughters who are lost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is absolutely zero pop understanding of what those stakes are. And we talk about over-policing and sending away the bad guys as if it exists in some vacuum, as if it's just this kind of anodyne thing. I want you to talk about that other side of the ledger that never, ever, ever, ever gets talked about, right? If, if the local news let off every night with a story profiling a family that was broken up by someone in county, you know, one of the hundreds of thousands of people in county jail pre-trial, whether or not they didn't, they missed their son's first softball game or they didn't pay rent and their family was evicted, whatever it is, they lost their job, they dropped out of school. We would have a totally different concept of what is crime. So I want you to talk about that side of the ledger and how it's completely erased. And that is a very loaded question, but go ahead. I think it's one of the most important questions that we can ask. And I want to just stop for a second and remember a few years ago when Trump was, was you know, separating families at the border, much of liberal America was outraged. They adopted this phrase, kids in cages, some people were outraged, protesting all over the place. And one thing that a lot of people didn't really fully appreciate at the time is that there are 3,163 local jails in this country where we separate children from their parents every single day. And the vast majority of people in those jails are separated from their children only because their parents can't pay a cash bail. That is how our legal system, police, prosecutors, judges, that is how our police sort of bureaucracy decides who should be with their children at home, who should be stuck in a cage of squalor and filth with no sunlight and exercise and fresh air and infectious disease and sexual assault. And so take something like the war on drugs. If you look at the costs of the war on drugs, not only has it been trillions of dollars over the last 40 years, but it caused over 50 million people to be caged 
about 20 million people from marijuana possession alone, tens of millions of children separated from their parents, hundreds of millions of police stopping and searching and probing people's bodies, including millions of times that police probe people's anuses and genitals for drugs. Not only did we cost tens of millions of people their education, their homes, and their ability to make a living, we also caused tens of millions of square acres of pristine land throughout Latin America to be spray poisoned. We surveilled the communications of billions of people around the globe. We basically eradicated the privacy in the Fourth Amendment. I could keep going on, right? There's many, many consequences, but maybe the most profound one is that we sentenced human beings to hundreds of millions of years in cages. And at the end of the day, after all of that, 40 years into the war on drugs, drug usage rates are higher in much of the country. Drug deaths are way higher than they used to be. Children are using dangerous drugs at higher rates. And all of this, mind you, while we legalize tobacco, which kills 450,000 human beings every single year, and alcohol, right? So there's, there's very particular political choices being made. But, but we engage in this war on drugs with all of those costs. And for all of the policing and prosecution and human caging, we actually made things worse. And we fundamentally need to get people to understand that police and cages and coercion and child and family separation are never going to make us safer as a society, ever. You know, something we've seen lately in a number of different contexts, but I think the most recent one that I remember is a very, very localized poll that was conducted in Detroit it was being touted as evidence to back the statement that communities suffering violence want more policing. They love cops and they want more cops. This has been making the rounds, this idea that, sure, sure, last year there was the whole George Floyd protests and defund and yada, yada, yada. But now that we see the stats rise on quote-unquote crime and it's reported on local news, it's on people's social media feeds, police are screaming about it, politicians are screaming about it, that actually when it comes down to it, that's just like a hippy-dippy fantasy and, and really the working class people who suffer from poverty and the violence caused by poverty actually aren't seeking alternatives. They just want more cops. What would you say to that? It's total nonsense. These polls that are supposedly relied on for this proposition are obviously, like all political polling by wealthy, powerful interests, the way that they ask the questions, and the way they frame the answers are designed to get to the result that they want. That's number one. Number two, you have to remember, our population has been heavily propagandized for multiple generations. These are very politicized issues, and for the last 40 years, they have been being lied to about what the police do, how police spend their time. They've been lied to about how unequal our society is. The costs of policing that you just asked me about have been completely hidden from people. So this is a, an area that, that there has been a tremendous propagandistic focus on, and so it's not surprising even that people's initial views on police are misinformed in many respects. But I think there's a deeper point. If you actually look at the polling and you ask a different sort of question, what people are saying isn't that they want police. What people are saying is that they want safe places to live, good jobs, resources for their kids after school. They want to be in a community that thrives and flourishes. They want health care. They want to be healthy. They don't want to be poisoned. They don't want their water poisoned with lead. They don't want to be kicked out of their home by their landlord. They don't want to have their home foreclosed on by a bank. They don't want their wages stolen. And when you actually look at what people say they want, 
they want the things that the police are designed to prevent. And so what we need also is an organizing and political education that counters a lot of the propaganda that wealthy interests who own the media have spread through the last 40 years. And I think this is a very complicated, profound issue. One of the ways in which media sort of commonly does this is they ask very particular, very narrow, very specific polling questions, when if they asked a deeper sort of question, they'd get really different answers about what people's priorities are and what alternatives to policing people would actually prefer billions of dollars to be spent on than more people with guns and weapons and, and handcuffs. Yeah, because it's, I mean, look, if you run a protection racket, and if it's 1920 Chicago, and I have you know, Al Capone defending my business from other mafias, and you ask me if I want to get rid of Al Capone, I'd say, well, no, because what, what the fuck else is there? Yeah. One of the things we've come across time and time again in this episode is that, like, we offer nothing else in return. Use an even hackier metaphor. We, someone's drowning, and you throw them a piece of barbed wire to grab onto. They're going to grab onto it. They don't have any other option. Police are the only option... The only way of adjudicating domestic violence, the only way of adjudicating car theft, the only way of adjudicating any of these stuff in some limited way, right? There's, there's nothing else to appeal to. You call 311, they're going to send a cop no matter what. Now, some people are trying to provide alternatives. Changing. Right? Mental health workers, social workers, something that gets mocked. It appears that the current consensus now in the Democratic Party under the Biden administration and under the auspices of electoral pragmatism this is, you know, throw black people under the bus is always the cleverest thing you can come up with when you're trying to argue against any kind of left-wing reform. And so now you have this thing where Eric Adams was elected mayor in New York City. That is now becoming the sort of counter-narrative. Chris Cuomo and CNN said... Will it, be elected mayor. Will be elected, sorry. It's a foregone conclusion, but yes, it has not happened <laughs> yet. Chris Cuomo, uh, James Carville was on CNN saying this. The New York Times wrote a puff piece on Eric Adams. The headline was... Why top Democrats are listening to Eric Adams right now? Some prominent Democrats think their party's nominee for mayor of New York offers a template for how to address issues of public safety. Now, this article four different times refers to, and I, knew, I know this is going to get under your skin. This is exactly what you're talking about. Four different times unironically refers to Eric Adams as the candidate of public safety. They refer to him as, quote, the most public safety-minded candidate in this year's mayoral primary, unquote. Now, this idea that being pro-police is, in, is interchangeable with public safety, I want you to comment on that. I want you to comment on the kind of, oh, look at Eric Adams. This is clearly showing that black and working class voters and black working class voters don't want to fund. They don't want any kind of establishment. Of they want this nebulous reform that Eric Adams supposedly represents. But considering he was endorsed by the New York Post, we're going to go ahead and assume that that's all going to be bullshit. I want you to talk about the way Eric Adams has emerged as the kind of mascot for this liberal, carceral liberal reaction to George Floyd protests and black lives. say because, again, because he's black, because he can sort of represent this pro-cop minority that everybody, that all these elites want to ventriloquize. I want to talk about that and talk about the broader narrative about public safety as being interchangeable with more police. I'm so glad you asked this question because I meant in your earlier question about how we counter this to say that one of the most important things we need to do is to take back this definition of what constitutes public safety. When the New York Times uses the term public safety, not only are they using a very narrow term that doesn't include things like, are people dying of preventable diseases? What does it mean to have a place to live or an apartment without mold? What does it mean to have my child get treatment for her asthma? There's so much that is encompassed in the concept of safety that has been left out by the policing and punishment bureaucracy, they want to narrow in. Um, and the only thing they want to consider 
safety related are the quote-unquote crimes committed by the poor. They don't see anything else as connected to safety. We need to take that back because true, safe, thriving, flourishing lives are, are about so much more. But I think the other point is the New York Times, when it says public safety, whose safety is it talking about? Who does the New York Times actually concerned? You know, are they concerned about water poisoned with lead in poor communities? Are they concerned about the safety of people at Rikers Island and the safety of people in prisons all across New York State and the safety of children who have had their mom or dad ripped away from them? They're not concerned with that. They have a very particular concept of safety. And it's one that's heavily determined by who owns the New York Times, who advertises in the New York Times, and the sort of social circles that New York Times reporters and editors hang out in. And this is a fundamental challenge for those of us who want to take on these media circles, because a lot of these reporters just have not ever really experienced all of the various harms that our society inflicts on the poorest people in our society. And, and it's very hard to get them to see those things as safe and as connected to safety. So I personally think that these reporters are connecting policing to public safety because of all of the ways to further public safety, universal health care, massive investments in education and after school programs and theater and music and art and restorative justice and violence interruption programs run by community members. Of all of those ways, the only way to address safety that furthers the control and power of the ruling class is arming a bunch of people the ruling class controls with guns and cages and handcuffs. And so they choose that option and they connect that option with safety, not because it makes people safer in any kind of holistic sense of the word, but because it furthers other political goals that they have. Well, right, because public safety is actually just like, you know, well, who is constituting the quote unquote public in that definition? And it is those moneyed in the friends of the reporters or or it is those politicians that are trying to absolutely destroy whatever momentum justice or standard civil rights and in say police funding uh, because there's this like direct correlation i think that's made between safety equals money toward people with guns who are wearing uniforms like there's this kind of like the idea as you said alec of expanding the definition of what public safety means i think there's just unfortunately so far to go in our kind of you know collective consciousness in the public imagination because it has been so deliberately suppressed and it, it kind of gets to the last thing that i want to ask you which is what are you working on at civil rights corps that really speaks to this and of course the broader work that you are all doing tell us a bit about civil rights corps and how people can get involved Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about our work. I mean, I, I think at a very high level, for the last few years, we've been working on things like the cash bail system, the incredible network of pretrial human caging all over this country. We cage human beings pretrial at a rate that no society in recorded history of the modern world has ever done. About 500,000 human beings in jail cells every single night in this country just because they can't pay cash bail or are otherwise detained prior to their trial. We've also been doing a lot of work on the criminalization of poverty and the way in which much of the criminal punishment bureaucracy, the, actually the vast bulk of the cases that are processed by police and prosecutors and judges are actually very low-level cases designed to generate revenue and designed to control people in their lives. So all over the country, we have lawsuits challenging, caging people just because they can't make payments, challenging the privatization of debt collection, challenging the taking away of people's driver's licenses just because they can't pay, 
challenging, as I mentioned, people being caged pre-trial because they can't pay money bail. It, at a very high narrative level, to sort of loop it back to this discussion, I think we're, we're doing some really subversive stuff. So we're, we're saying to people, did you know that the way that these quote-unquote law enforcement, I use that term in quotes because they only enforce some laws against some people some of the time, but did you know that, that law enforcement, the way they decide who is in a cage and who is separated from their families, who has access to enough cash? And, and people are shocked by that. Ordinary people all over the country, they've never really thought about the bail system before. But once they learn about it, I think it subverts their sense that the system has any integrity. Because if it's making that important decision about whether a child should be home with her mom and able to hug her mom on the basis of how much cash the mom has, how can they trust anything else the system is telling them? How do they trust all the myths the system is giving them if the system is doing that? And the same is true with the criminalization of poverty. If, if people are being jailed for profit just because they can't pay fines, how can we trust all of the other decisions that these people, these bureaucrats are telling us are done for our own safety? Because the vast bulk of what they're doing has no conceivable relation to safety at all. So I think our work in, in some respects, all over the country, in local communities where we have partners, everywhere we go, we try, you know, we're not as good at this as we would like, but we try to work with local organizers and activists and people who are directly impacted to try in some way to change these narratives, to challenge them, to offer different voices and to tell the stories of the cost of the system so that people can have a really different understanding from what they're told in the mainstream media every single day. Well, I think that is a wonderful place to leave it. We've been speaking with Alec Karakatsanis, founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. Previously, Alec was a civil rights lawyer and public defender in the District of Columbia and state of Alabama and co-founder of the organization Equal Justice Under Law, the author of usual cruelty and you can follow him on twitter at equality alec alec thank you so much again for joining us today on citation thank you so much it was so fun yeah and when we say the media shapes these perceptions of crime and, and hypes crime again regardless of what the data says before this recent alleged murder spike crime spike what have you in media criticism, you rarely get data that shows that there is manipulation going on in such a stark way as you 